things are kind of reworked for you. This is not part of the sermon at all, but I just think the amount of prayers that have gone up for um, our Sunday morning experience to feel a little bit more aesthetically pleasing. Who would have known that Green King pubs would spend 30,000 pounds to answer that prayer for us? (laughs) At least where we are now, right? It's an amazing thing. It's really great. Um, So yes, praise the Lord for that. Um, Not surprising that he works, but when he does, it's really good. It's really good. Um, Well, as you you kind of heard from where we are in the text, these are Paul's last words to these leaders in the church at Ephesus. And uh, we're going to focus a bit on what, um, what makes good leaders in general, but then we're also going to talk about what about leaders specifically here in Redeemer, about elders in Redeemer. Um, so it's kind of, we're trying to get at both of these things. And these are Paul's uh, last words to these elders of a church at Ephesus. Um, who he knew very well. And obviously they were connected uh, closely, emotionally even. I'm saying like, oh, the, the thing that grieved them the most was that they were not going to see him again. That made them really sad, which is a good thing. It's not really, oh, it was a, one of the happiest things they heard when Paul said he was never going to see them again. Um, but I, I was looking at uh, some other famous last words uh, around. Uh, Richard B. Mellon, if you know, he's, he was a multimillionaire. Um, when he died, uh, his, his, the famous, not for him, well, his famous last words was it. Um, or tag, because um, he and his brother had had this like decades-long game of tag. And so the very last thing he did right before he died is he tagged his brother and he died. And then his brother was it till he died because he couldn't tag him back because the guy was dead. So I thought it was pretty good last words. Uh, Winston Churchill, never, never a dull quote from Winston Churchill. His last words were, I'm bored with it all, which sounds very much like my son. Um, Groucho Marx, when he was dying, uh, this is, what a dad joke way to go. Uh, he said, this is no way to live. And then he died. <laughs> if you know uh, Buddy Rich, Dr- Buddy Rich was a very famous jazz drummer, very spicy jazz drummer. He said what he thought all the time, and he was not always nice in the stuff that he said. Well, he died after surgery in the late 80s, I think. And as he was being prepped for surgery, a nurse asked him, is there anything you can't take, like medicine or whatever? He goes, yeah, country music. Kind of like, and those are his last words. It was very kind of fitting if you've ever heard of anything Buddy Rich has done. Now, if you knew you had last words to say to someone, what would you choose to say? Maybe it was one of those that we mentioned. Um, but you'd probably, like Paul, now Paul wasn't about to die, but he was the last time he was going to see them. Probably you would think of like, man, what's really important? Probably the most important thing I can think of. That's what I want to kind of leave with people as like a, a, a mini legacy. And in Acts 20 here, we have these last words from Paul. Paul is, uh, he wrote most of our New Testament. He was uh, a Jewish convert. He was um, a church planter. He planted loads of churches, raised up loads of leaders. And we, he will have this one last time here with the leaders in the church that he planted. There is a church at Ephesus that he planted. And Paul isn't at Ephesus, but they come from Ephesus. And Paul is on his way somewhere else, and they kind of meet up in this middle area, these parting words, but also words that have them focus on what he wants them to focus on, to keep them going in the right direction. Now, from Paul's perspective, you can imagine him wanting to make most of the time. Like, these are the leaders that he has grown, that he's invested in, this is a church that he's planted. But then, think of it from the other side. If you are a, um, one of the leaders of the church at Ephesus, uh, what, what about them? Without Paul, like, Paul's their leader. Paul's their guy. Paul's been the one who's been telling them what to do and helping them when things are tough. How are we going to do it with him not around? Like, what, are, what exactly are we going to do? Can we do it? And this is, I think, the thing with good leaders. Good leaders are there for those who need direction. 
And if you need direction in anything, well, we find it even better than a good leader. We find it here in the Word. Just like the leaders at Ephesus, all of us are in need of someone to give us an orientation, a bearing on a compass, and, and also not only that, but just like a way to get there. And that's what good leaders do, right? They don't like direct you and tell you you must do this and this. They give you kind of a direction. They give you, help you like, find out ways to get there. And that's exactly kind of what we see here going on in this, in this chapter. Now, without that, what we do, without that kind of direction, we end up kind of going around in circles. Or maybe we have a thing that we want to get to, but we kind of go here for a while, and then, oh, no one's really to tell us, actually, we need to be going this way. So good leaders, they help direct us and lead us to where we, where we need to go. Like we all need good leaders in our lives. Now, what Jesus did in Paul's life was transform someone going in the wrong direction. Paul, before meeting Jesus, like literally meeting the resurrected Jesus himself, before Paul was, did that, he was on his way destroying God's people, trying to tear down God's people, trying to bring, break them apart. Then when he met Jesus, as it is, everything changed. And instead of tearing down God's people, now he, his, his entire life was dedicated to building up God's people, creating new communities where God's people can thrive. And what Jesus does for Paul, for those leaders of Ephesus, for us here today, Jesus transforms wrong-headed, chaotic messes that we are, going nowhere, into a people with a good and right direction. Jesus transforms wrong-headed, chaotic messes going nowhere into a people with a good and right direction. And we're going to see how that worked out in Paul's life, and then, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> and then also get how um, we can learn from that um, in, from Paul. The first thing we're going to start with is this singular task, one task. And if you have any questions as we go, there's a little website there. It's anonymous. You can put the questions in, and uh, we'll talk about them after the sermon. So there's one task here um, that comes up a few times. So what is Paul's overarching task? If you look at verse 24, <clears throat> it says, Paul says, However I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim, here it is, is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me. What is that task? The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's Paul's only aim. Finish the race well, to finish the task well. What's the task? Testifying to God's grace, the good news of God's grace. That just means talking about what the Lord has done in him. That change of destroying God's people, meeting Jesus, now completely different. That was Paul's only aim. And also he says, I consider uh, my life worth nothing to me. Before Jesus, it was all about Paul climbing the career ladder. He was all in on his career. He was all in on being like a, a Jewish teacher and all in on um, and destroying this like weird sect of Jewish people called Christians. Um, so he was uh, focused just on himself and the career. That's what life was all about. But now after Jesus, that radically changed his orientation as his life. He got turned upside down, or maybe he was upside down to begin with, and got turned right side up. Because now he saw something bigger and better than just his career. Now he saw something testifying to the good news of God's grace. He, he, he tells us also in verse 21, basically the same thing, if you go back a few verses. Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So Jews and Greeks, it just means people with any kind of background, regardless of if they know things about God, if they don't know things about God, if they know things about religion, if they don't know things about religion. And that they must realign their lives to God and put their trust in Jesus. See, as Paul follows Jesus... Jesus' vision becomes Paul vision, Paul's vision. This is not something that started with Paul. Paul wasn't like, I had this really good idea. Maybe we should like plant churches. Maybe we should like talk about the good news of God's grace. This is a really good idea I have. No, that's Jesus' idea that Paul gets to be a part of because 
Jesus changed Paul. And now you might think, especially when I use the word preach, you're like, well, I don't preach. That's for like, you know, weird professional Christians that stand up in pubs and talk to people. But we're always, preaching is just is talking about something that you're passionate about, that you care about. And we're always preaching, right? You see a good film, you're like, that was amazing. And you talk about it, you're preaching. Like, that, that's fine. You can preach about films. But what is like the main thing? If you were to ask someone who was close to you, your friends, even your kids, what is the main thing they would say that you preach about? Would it be Jesus? Or would it be, I mean, if you're my kid, it might be like, I don't know, stop doing that or be good or something like this, some kind of behavioral thing. What would your friends say? What would your friends say you actually really are super passionate about? Like, ah, oh, you know, Mike, he's into this, this thing, this, and this thing, but what he's really about is this. What is that thing? We all have that. And we may not think, just as we don't think that we preach very often, we probably don't think we make disciples very often, but we do. We're always influencing people to do something, to do, motivating people to do something. That's making disciples of people. So we're always leading people. So what are we making them disciples of? Are we making them disciples of ourselves? Are we making them disciples of whatever kind of other thing we're interested in? Have we bought into the lie of that middle class path of success in all things? Or maybe the horrible idea that life is just about being good? Or is it like Paul, the way of Jesus? It's a difficult question. But all this is difficult. Nobody said this was easy. Jesus was the one who probably said it was difficult more often than anyone else. But also, it is difficult. So no, no lie there. It is difficult. But also, as we read Paul's words here, he's encouraged. And he's encouraging other people. And this will be a situation where you think, how can someone like that keep that level of encouragement within himself in order to encourage other people? And that's not something that we have within ourselves. So if we are following Jesus, if his vision is ours, we will have an encouragement within us that sometimes might not make sense given life circumstances, but we'll also have encouragement that we can be able to give to other people because it doesn't just end with us. And before we get to how this all gets worked out, which we will talk about that in a moment, this is the big single task that all of us are able to be a part of. All of us get to testify to the good news of God's grace. Everyone who knows Jesus, that, that gets to be your life. That gets to be, this, God has this massive mission of, of remaking this world, of renovating this world beyond a 30 grand refit, which is amazing, but it is going to get better than this, can you imagine? Um, that we get to be a part of, that we get to join God in and what he's going to do. Like God is going to do his thing. And he, if he wanted to, he could just do it himself and it would probably be done a lot better than us getting involved in it. But God is so good to us, he asks us to come along and he wants us to be a part of that. That is an amazing thing that we get to be a part of. Instead of being obsessed with our careers or our families or our friends, all those are really good, but they're really not great. They're not the greatest. God allows us to be part of the greatest thing, to testify to the good news of God's grace. And even though it is tempting to seek out the path of least resistance, to not risk, to aim for comfort, and I get it, especially post-COVID, I feel like there's a level of sluggishness, just a little bit, 1% or however many percent more, of just like, it's a little bit more difficult to do things than we were before. When we live in those easier, comfort-focused ways, we live for lesser things, we're actually, we're going to find a lack of encouragement. We're not going to find any kind of encouragement that Paul has here. We'll feel a bit empty because this is the kind of thing we're actually made for. Meaningful lives are given up every day in the name of comfort. Every day. And if we do go the path of least resistance, 
We also won't have much to encourage other people with, people who we care about, people who we want to be encouraged as well. And this requires us to continually be going back to Jesus, as Paul did with his life. Because when we are with Jesus, his vision becomes our vision. His task is our task. And we get to live a life that feels actually really good at the end of the day, even if you're completely knackered. Now, of course, there are loads of reasons why we don't follow through in the way that God's telling us here. And I think one thing that holds us back, surely, is the fear of failure. Of like, I'm going to get it wrong. Like, I'm, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? What if I say something and I realize, like, oh, no, that wasn't really, like, really the whole truth? Or, or, or what if um, they're, they're offended or they say no, or, or maybe not even offended, and they just say no, and I'll, maybe I'll feel dumb or awkward or feel stupid? Now, that fear of failure, that keeps us on the sidelines. It keeps us from joining in. It keeps us from inviting people to, like, a carol service, things like that. Now, we may not be traveling um, around in Asia starting churches the way that Paul has done, but how many times have you refrained from saying something to someone because you thought you'd get it wrong? Like, surely we've all done that. We've all done that. Or you've not invited someone to something because, like, what if they say no? Oh, I probably shouldn't invite them. Everyone struggles with this fear. But failure is not getting it wrong because you will get it wrong. All of us will. Failure is not, it doesn't, rely, it doesn't rest in someone saying no because people aren't always going to say yes. Failure is not doing the thing to begin with. The small part of obedience on our side, of inviting someone, of talking to somebody. Failure, if you're a Christian, not saying something, not asking, not inviting, not picking up the phone, not sending that text, that's what failure is like, not kind of taking that step. And whether people respond the way they want, we want them to or not is not part of the equation at all. People are going to do what they want to do, and how God works in their life is, is how God works. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to take a step of faith. And where in the Bible does it say that we should only share the gospel with people that we've deemed okay to receive it? That's actually anti-Bible. That's Jews and Greeks. That's people who you think are going to get it, people you don't think are going to get it. How others respond is not our responsibility, but what is our responsibility is to join Jesus on his mission. And that looks different for every single one of us. And there are people in your life that God is calling you to lead, and you're leading them now, one way or another. Some of those people are Christians. Some of those people aren't Christians. But God is calling you to disciple them, to join in with his work in this world. And I wonder if that's our vision for this life. I think at times it probably is, but we could probably all grow a little bit in that. And when we fail in this, because we will, when we fail, we get to ask him to forgive us and take us long again. And through that process of failure is generally how we learn, which I hate to be true, but unfortunately it is true. And like Paul, all of us, we have that one task, testifying to the good news of God's grace. I wonder what that looks like in your life, because it's going to be different for everybody. I wonder what that might look like in your life. And that's maybe where we'll go to next, because this all sounds theoretically, yeah, it sounds good. Of course you're going to talk about that kind of stuff at church on a Sunday, right? But what does it actually look like? Now, that one task of testifying to the good news of God's grace has many, many ways of being worked out, as many ways as there are people. And because we are all uniquely work out in this different ways, um, we're going to look at some larger categories that will be true for all of us. So there's one task that we have, but it does look differently. The first thing is the posture the posture that, that um, Paul has here. The first is the posture of a servant. If you look at verse 19, Paul says, um, uh, I serve the Lord with great humility. Great humility, and not just humility, but tears. Tears in the midst of trials, of testing. So there's humility, and there's tears when it was tested. Now, all of what Paul is talking about here, is, and, and church planting itself, 
It's hard work. If you guys ever felt like, man, church can be hard sometimes. Yes, it is. We are doing the hardest thing you can think of church-wise in one of the most difficult neighborhoods in Manchester church-wise. So if you've ever thought, man, this is hard. Shouldn't it be easier? Like, unfortunately, no. The reason why it's not easier is because nobody, very few other people are doing this. We're not the only people, but very few other people. It's not like Trollton's overrun by churches, overrun by people talking to other people about Jesus. It's not like people are over, Trollton is overrun by people wanting to put on like light switch-ons and carol services and things like that so that people will hear about Jesus. Of course it's difficult. Like, it's no surprise it's difficult. It it's, will always be difficult. And there are tears when there's hard work involved. But this is what Paul's consistent character through that difficulty is, is humility, is a servant. And servants aren't put on the pedestal. Servants are treated like servants. And if you've ever felt like that, that's kind of what happens, unfortunately. And Paul says that in verse 18. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came, even to your province, I was like this. I was humble. When I had tears, I, I, I cried. The posture of a servant is one who serves other people first. They don't big up themselves. They don't talk about themselves in in massive ways. They don't have others organize their lives around them. They give more than they receive. So there's the the posture of what it looks like here. But it's also, um, it's a people focus. Paul yearns to see these elders at Ephesus. And the leaders at Ephesus yearned to see him. It took these guys at Ephesus three days to travel to him. That's three days of putting off whatever they're going to do before and and three days to travel back as well. That's a a serious kind of um, uncomfortable thing, quite a commitment. I mean, sometimes we can't be bothered for a two-hour missional community meeting, right? Imagine traveling three days to see some guy. You're like, ah, I don't know. I got a lot of things on. But that's because there's this people orientation from Paul and from these leaders. In verse 20, um, Paul says that he uh, taught publicly and from house to house. So he did like the big public kind of gathering thing. But the house to house thing is in people's houses, in their houses, them, them over in Paul's house. A relational aspect here of going to others, of being with them, and not just being with them, but pointing to Jesus when he was with them. Now, Paul did this in such a way that everyone knew about it. It wasn't periodic. It wasn't nine to five. It wasn't like, well, here's my hours and here's not my hours. <clears throat> it was regular and ongoing. So there's uh, posture, there's a people orientation, and then, of course, we already talked about this briefly, but there's also a preaching aspect that Paul talks more about. See, Paul is not hesitant to bring God's word into conversations, be it public or in smaller kind of chats. The life that God brings through his word comes through Paul to other people in lots of different situations. And Paul, in telling them this, even in these words that we have here, is encouraging them and and us to continue to live that way, to do the same. For Paul, it didn't matter if it was a religious person who was similar to him or someone who wasn't religious and was culturally very different. Paul says in verse 21, Jews and Greeks, it's people who were like him, people who were not like him. People who knew about religious stuff, people who didn't. People who had his accent, people who had other accents. Maybe even North American accent might be acceptable. People who, from his similar class background, people from other backgrounds. This is how Paul worked because this is how Jesus worked. Jesus is the most welcoming individual that's ever existed. Now, exactly how that looks like in your life, the posture, the people, the preaching thing, will be different from mine. It will be different from the person next to you. It's going to be all very different. But what ought not to be different are those categories going on. The posture of a servant, being people-focused with each other and preaching God's word to people in ways that are appropriate and make sense to others. 
Now that's different if you are primarily home with children or see neighbors often. That's different if you're uh, if you have a job where you're working a lot of hours and you're around work colleagues often. That's different if you are in school. That's different. You know, it's different in all kinds of situations and different in different um, life stages as well. When you have little children, it's really different when your children are grown up or even when they're out of the house. It's all very different. Okay, so we've looked at that one task, testifying to the good news of God's grace, and some of the larger categories of what that looks like. Now, um, just kind of briefly, we look of how it works out, of how it works out. And the answer to this is in verse 28, if you have your Bible there. <clears throat> verse 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. This is one of those... Um, those verses that, especially for elders, for leaders in the church, is like a, to ma- this is Paul's kind of charge to these leaders, these elders in Ephesus, and as it con- continually gets to be a charge for people who are elders in local churches today. But notice here, it doesn't start with watching other people. It says, "Keep watch over yourself." The very first thing, keep watch over yourselves. It starts with watching over your own heart. There's no way you can be effective in watching over other people's hearts if your own heart is in complete disarray. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean you have to know what's going on. There's a self-awareness of where your, where your um, shortcomings are and where, the, where God is working. I mean, in leadership, everyone is tempted to believe their own press. Like, oh, you know what? My mom is right. I am awesome. Like, <laughs> but watch over yourself. Because all of a sudden, you might find yourself on a 10-centimeter you know, stage. And even just that little amount for a small person like me makes you feel, oh, this feels tall. So it's keep watch over yourself and all the flock, all the flock, everyone, not just the easy ones, not just the ones that are nice to hang out with, not just the ones that like you, not just the ones that tell you you're awesome and, oh, have you grown about 10 centimeters? No, everyone in the church ought to be out, go out of their way to love other people. Uh, One eye on yourself, another eye on the people that God has called you to lead. And notice in the section here, these leaders here um, weren't appointed by people just like leaders that we have in the church. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Overseers is another word for elders, another word for pastors. It's all kind of synonymous kind of words. The Holy Spirit has made these people leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that um, some kind of divine right of kings applies uh, to leaders in the church, but it does mean that if there are leaders in the church, it's because God put them there. And God uses human means to, to make that happen. But the Holy Spirit has made these people leaders. The kind of leaders the Holy Spirit makes is often different than the kind of leaders that we think that we need. We want someone who's like nice, charismatic, dynamic, all those kinds of things. And sometimes we need those people, but sometimes servant doesn't look like that. It looks very different. It's also different also than the kind of leader that we think we need to be. We think we need to be the perfect leaders, the ones who have it all together, the ones who, as, who couldn't say with Paul, you know the tears that I've had because they never show tears. The kinds that are probably actually not very humble because they have to like be the alpha male type. That's not the kind of leaders the Holy Spirit appoints. Because the other word that's used here is shepherds. Be shepherds of the church. Shepherds were not rock stars. I don't know if, I don't know a shepherd. I don't Kathleen might know some. Yeah. They aren't rock stars. They're normal farm people. They're like very normal people. Especially then. I mean shepherds were uh, were not like the high class people. Um, they weren't the um, they weren't the elite. 
If leaders are shepherds, they're not rock stars. Interesting, Paul could have used loads of different metaphors there. He could have used a general. He could have used um, like a business owner or something like that, but he doesn't. He chooses to use shepherds. And shepherd, it's, not, it's a very common term to use for leaders. It's not a decision-making person first. A shepherd is with the sheep. A church leader is with their people. They will know them. They'll love them. They will smell like them in the best way that could possibly be. They're going to be around them. They're going to know them enough to know how to lead them. You have to know people, know how to lead them. Some need bringing back. Some need to be pushed. Some need to be kind of corralled. Some need to be fed. Like, how, how do you know? Some need to be, um, you need to leave these in order to get that one. How are you going to know unless you know them? You have to know the sheep. And that's why leaders are called shepherds. So there's one task, talking about the good news of God's grace. And we talked about um, what that looks like and how it works out. There's one more thing that we're going to look to um, before we look at how, it might, how it's going to specifically work out for Redeemer, though, um, because it does require one commitment. This one task requires one commitment. It's one commitment from God that enables us to have one commitment to Him. But what happens first is the commitment to God from us. The end of verse 28, be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. Notice not be shepherds of your church in Ephesus. It's the church of God. It's His church. And He bought it. His commitment was first. We commit to God because he's committed to us. The church is bought by Jesus's own blood. Here it doesn't say that Jesus died for you. This does not say Jesus died for you, individual. Jesus died for the church. That includes you, individuals, but isn't you, doesn't stop with you. God's mission is to create a people for himself who can experience his love and glory through a community, through a family. I mean, how did God plan to carry out this mission? He could have done it himself. He could have done it through individuals, but he didn't. He did it through us, through people. He could have done it. Um, who, Paul, surely, by himself could have done it. Jesus, surely, by himself could have done it. But it was never like that. He always had people. <clears throat> even this church, even other churches. We experience his love and glory. <clears throat> Sorry. I need to get like a quick mute button to clear my throat so you guys don't have to hear all that nastiness. But... We do get to experience his love and glory, and God has chosen other people to experience his love and glory, but through us. It doesn't come from us first, though, because Jesus bought it. Our cleverness did not birth a church. Our passion did not lead to a church being planted. The Wilsons moving from America to England isn't the reason why Redeemer is here. Our holiness, our knowledge of theology, the love that we have for each other, our familyness, all of these are really, really good things, but they're not the reason why Redeemer is here, and they're not the reason why this church exists. Jesus has bought the church. Only he has bought this church. And before we can do anything for God, God has committed to us. He's done everything for us. Singularly, wholeheartedly, God didn't reserve a part of himself, be like, ah, if this doesn't work out, I guess I can kind of focus on this. God was all in without reservations, not for you as an individual, for you as part of the church. And when we get that, that's where our work and passion and commitment comes from. When we get that God has committed to us in this kind of glorious and crazy and really absurd way when you think about it, we can commit to him. And that's what verse 32 talks about. Paul's charge to the church leaders at Ephesus says, uh, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So even though we say keep watch over yourselves, keep watch over, uh, over other people, the first commitment, the first priority that any leader, really any, any person, is going to have has to be to God first and to his word. That's what verse 32 is about. 
If you're not committed to God, how can you be committed to other people? If you're not committed to his words and him telling us how we ought to live, how could you possibly be committed to other people well? Leaders in the church are not committed to others first, which sounds a bit counterintuitive. Like, oh, what are, leaders are about other people first. Yeah, that, I mean, we kind of almost already said that. But really, the first priority is being committed to God before everything. A church leader and elder is committed to others, but they're first committed to God and his word. And that commitment, is, out of that flows out how an elder will be able to be committed to other people, only if they're committed to God and his word first let alone their own spiritual life, let alone their own family, let alone their own friends and all the things that God's called us to. To love others well, counterintuitive, to love others well, you don't make them first. Because if you have them first, and they're going to be in a position they can never come through on, and uh, you don't have the resources to help them in the way they need. To love others well, God comes first. And to lead in the church, you don't make the people in the church first. So God has one commitment to us. We have a commitment to him. And from that commitment, then, flows the ability to love others in ways that would not be possible otherwise. And all of this is worked out by God. We don't build ourselves up. Notice it says, commit yourselves to God um, and read the Bible and build yourself up. No, commit yourself to God and his word, and you will be built up. It's a passive thing that happens when you get committed to him. We don't build ourselves up. He does. He actively does it as we engage with him and his word. It's a little bit like um, oxygen masks that drop from airplanes. I, this has never happened to me on a flight. I don't know if it's ever happened to you guys. It's probably super scary all of a sudden the, the masks are coming down. But they tell you to put the, the mask on yourself first, don't they, instead of like your children or something. It's exactly the kind of uh, idea that's going on here. Without the connection to the oxygen yourself, there's no hope you can help anyone else that you care about who's in the row with you. Because when you're in that plane, if the oxygen masks are coming down, there's something about that air, whether it's smoke or whatever, it's tainted, and inhaling it by itself for too long means you will die. And you can't help anyone when you're dead. You can tag them right before you die, and they can be it. That's basically about it. So everyone in that situation needs a connection to an oxygen mask. Not just to live a long time in the future. It's not just an eternal life thing. This is for life eternal like right now. We need it now. We need that oxygen now. And only those who are connected to the oxygen will be able to help those who aren't yet. So the only way to love the people in your life well is for this to be true of your life first. God is committed to us. We get to commit to him. I think it's interesting that Jesus really could have died for anything. He's God. He could have chose whatever he wanted to die for. He chose to die for the church. That's why Jesus died. He chose to die for the church. He bought the church with his death. That means this, all of this that we're doing here, isn't just a good option. This is the ultimate thing that God cares about. Jesus' vision gets worked out in the context of our church, and he died for that to be true. And I'm willing to bet that Jesus probably has a higher view of the church than any one of us. I think we'd be like, yeah, the church is all right, but, you know, there are things that are probably more important. Now, we're not going to say that to each other on a Sunday. We might say each other, you know, outside of this, or, but we definitely act like that. Our lives probably look like that because none of us are perfect, right? Jesus has a higher view of the church than any one of us have. And I hope that as we realize our lame and small views of the church in light of what Jesus thinks about it, that we would surrender to him. And I think probably, even though we have too small a view of the church, probably all of us have a bit too high a view of ourselves. I mean, that's the human condition, isn't it? 
I think probably each one of us does. What would it look like if we kind of reverse that a little bit? We're not going to get it perfectly, but maybe if we decrease a little bit and he increases a little bit more, what would that look like in our lives? Probably things would change. Maybe not anything outwardly would change. We might be still doing all the same things, but we might be going about those things in different ways. When it comes to our faith, we can't help but be individualistic by default because this is the, the, the idle river that we're born into, that we're all swimming in, that it's all about me individually. What could it look like to realize that the church, the church is the place to be, even Redeemer, even with all of its imperfections, as any church has. This is where Jesus is at work, bringing people from darkness to light, and we get to be a part of that. And the people who are being brought from darkness to light, that, that's all of us. Anyone in any job can get in on this. Being part of Redeemer is nothing less than being part of God's eternal global plan so that Manchester reflects a little bit more of heaven. Anyone in any spiritual situation can get in on this. If you have some kind of theological knowledge, some experience of the church, how are you using that for the church that Jesus died for? If you're new to the faith or to this particular church, how are you not just consuming but also participating in the mission of the church? We have space for everyone to to be involved. If you don't know Jesus yet, maybe you're interested, maybe you're curious, this is equally for you as well. And God is not something that you kind of reach up towards. If you try really hard, maybe you'll get like a little piece of them, you can bring them down and then get them. No, God is, came down to us. And that's what like Advent, anticipating Christmas, is all about. God coming down to us. He's someone who came down and reaches down towards us. And in his strength, he pulls us out from where we are to something better. And this is what the cross is all about. It's what it's all about. We couldn't reach up to him because our sin has us stuck. We're kind of like, I thought quicksand, I don't know if I said, I feel like I said this last week. I feel like quicksand is one of those things. When you grew up as a kid, you're like, man, I know all about quicksand. And I know it's like, it's perilous. It's everywhere. But I know how to get out of it. You don't move quickly or someone gets a stick. I feel like you hear about quicksand loads in, in kids' stories. I've never actually anticipated, I've encountered quicksand in my life. But it's as maybe a good metaphor for what our sin is like. like. We're all kind of stuck in it. And if we move on our own volition and our own power, the quicker we move, like the more we just kind of feel stuck or the more we realize we are stuck. Unless there's someone out there who's safe bringing us out of that, then we're, we're, we're kind of done for and eventually it'll cover us up. All the modern progress and technology in the world has done nothing to change our hearts. We're still in the mired in that quicksand stuck. And so Jesus came and he changed it for us. He died so we be free from our sin, included in that is freed from those lame and low visions of life that we have for ourselves. This not only makes us right with God, which is an amazing thing in itself, it does make us right with God, but not only that, it makes us right within ourselves and with each other. It's only through the cross that we can even imagine to be involved in this world renovation project. Now, these leaders in Ephesus are called elders. And uh, you may have heard that term before, maybe not. Um, I was chatting with Alicia earlier in the week. I was like, yeah, don't they use the word elder in Lord of the Rings? I feel like there's like a Lord of the Rings connection. They kind of do, but not really. Um, when I hear the word elder, I just think of people who are older than me. Um, or maybe some kind of like mythical, like do they use wands? Like what, what's the deal? Um, well, the word elder is synonymous with a word uh, that we use often today called pastor. It's basically the same word. Um, or if you want to get technical in the Greek, presbyteros, which is another way of saying like bishop, it means someone mature in the faith who is part of the leadership team of a church. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the way the church is called to be organized isn't by one person. It's by a community of leaders working together called elders, like these community of uh, leaders who came from Ephesus to, to meet with Paul. 
Now, since Redeemer began, one of my biggest prayers has been for there to be more elders than just myself. We've just been a single elder church in the process of trying to grow some elders. And sometimes in church planting, you don't have ready-made elders and you have to work at it. And here's how God has been working at it. And so we could talk briefly about what leaders look like in Redeemer and what the kind of next steps look like. Step one, there's four steps. The first step in identifying potential elders for Redeemer um, has been, um, well, we've had two men who have identified as potential elder candidates, people who were hungry to grow, humble in character, and smart enough relationally to be able to have that people aspect that we talked about. Um, now, there are a few places also in the New Testament we're not going to get to right now that list the characteristic of elders, and overwhelmingly, it's the mature character. It's not actually really any kind of ministry competence, anything more than having people in your home and being able to teach. Not even be good at teaching, but being able to, knowing doctrine, things like that. It's mostly about the elder's character. Are they honest? Are they generous? Are they loving? Do they, are they serving other people? Um, and so the two people that, um, that we'll be talking about um, are here. So we'll be talking about when they're here, which makes me feel a little bit better, are uh, Mike and Dan. Um, so they get to be here while we talk about them. Um, and so the second step was there, Mike and Dan um, were invited into this process. Um, before anything, they had a few requirements to satisfy. Um, I made a bullet point list of this. And you're going to be like, wow, they were really put through the ringer. And they have been. Um, character in line with those, those chapters that we talked about. By the way, this is not the only time we're going to be talking about elders, so if you're like, whoa, this is like loads of information, we're going to have months to be able to talk about this and talk through this. So if you have any questions, you can send them in and we can talk about it, but we will have time to talk through this as well. Um, one of the initial requirements was to have at least, at least read through the Bible, or read through the Bible at least once, like fully in the past five years, kind of knowing your Bible is something. Um, there's a couple books we went through, one on eldership, one on emotionally healthy spirituality, uh, to believe and support the uh, statements of faith with FIEC in Acts 29, to complete this um, elder development survey that Redeemer has developed. Basically, they would complete it, uh, and a few other people's completed it, and questions asking about their life, where they need to grow, what, where their gifts are, things like that, how they work out in the church, and also to have capacity and margin to actually do this thing. For training now uh, in this kind of pre-elder phase, but also uh, emotional space for that, but after they become leaders, become elders in the church, it, there's a, a definitely a capacity and margin requirement for that. And so once um, everyone felt like those initial requirements felt like they were satisfied, um, Christine and I were able to have a chat with them and, and their partner, their spouse about um, the elder development survey. And just it was an invitation there, too, to be like, okay, here's some of the things. You want to keep going? You want to pause on this? Or what are some things you think you might need to work on? So basically to try and keep an open conversation. So from number two, went to number three, which is uh, three words together, potential elder candidate. Um, and from in this phase, the goal was to have some training through the various perspectives of leading a church plant in Manchester, specifically leading Redeemer. Being an elder in Redeemer um, and being an elder in a different church can look very different because Redeemer is a different church than other ones. Um, each month we get together to pray and we have monthly meetings talking through kind of various topics of pastoral care mission, discipleship, as well as kind of nuts and bolts stuff, like coming to trustees meetings, getting um, uh, some idea of finances, talking through venue issues, things like that, all the fun stuff that church planting actually really is. Um, now, after some time, uh, there were two interviews that they had with people who are external to Redeemer. So this isn't just like an internal Redeemer thing. They're people who were pastors, um, 
but not part of Redeemer, who've been pastors in Manchester before. And this helped to, in the assessment process in general, helping me to kind of think of how can we, you know, do this process well. But it was also to guard against the idea that Redeemer or Greg only picks guys that he likes or only picks yes men or only picks like the people who are going to want, who are going to like sign off on the things that Greg wants to do. Now, not that I would like that or want to do that, but also if anyone thought I was like that or said, oh, that's the kind of thing Greg's about, we at least have the process itself as shows that that's actually not like that. So it helps to kind of guard against that and also guard against them because they're beyond something like a yes man. So those interviews, interviews came through and went really well. Everyone was encouraged on that side. It, it's a lot, by this time, by the way, there's a lot of time and energy invested already. What happened after that, we combined all that into a document of a few pages of what the next steps might be. And both Mike and Dan were recommended to become elders after satisfying a few conditions. And so as they satisfy these conditions, we go to number four, which is where we are today. This is the first day we get to say this, which is fantastic. Um, As they are satisfying these conditions that came up in the previous phase, in the spring, uh, we will vote for them to be elders, fellow pastors alongside me. Elder is pastor is um, leader is whatever kind of word that whatever kind of church tradition your back your, your background might be. Now, me being uh, an elder who is also a full time minister, a full time basically a full time elder, I'm going to have more capacity than somebody like Mike who has a very full time job might have. But that doesn't change anything with the level of authority or any level of leading or anything like that. It's different how it works out, but the same level it basically. Um, Mike and Dan will be pastors alongside with me. Now, that re- in order for that to happen, it requires a three-fourths vote from people who are members. So if you're a member of Redeemer, you have the responsibility here to choose leaders that you think are worthy of leading. It's not just on me. It's not just on the external people. It's not just on this process I talked about. This is for the kind of leaders that we want as members of Redeemer. And now, if you're not a member, um, we want you to kind of participate as well. If, if you have like any feedback or things like that, we'd love to hear that. But for if you are a member, that means you've already committed to Redeemer. You said you're, you're in. That means um, making sure you have good pastors in our church. Now, if you have a question on any of this stuff, and you might, because maybe even the term eldership or a team of elders is a new thing, I am way more, uh, very happy to chat about what those things might be. We may not have all the time today. I'm looking at the time now. So we'll look, I will chat with you afterwards because we won't be able to do the ask questions now because we've gone too long. Sorry about that. It's kind of like doing two sermons in one. What are we doing with elders? And also, what are elders? I swore I could push it through. That's my life, isn't it? And all this, this is quite a process to go through. So please be praying for Dan and for Mike and for myself. First, that that they would be able to, in a way that makes sense for their families, for their jobs, um, to be able to, like, balance this with everything else that's going on. It would be a horrible thing if being an elder redeemer meant, um, you know, not being a good husband. We don't want that. Or not being a good father. We don't want that either. And it doesn't have to be like that. But this is the first time we've done it as a church, and the first time that, uh, that Mike has gone through this process. And so we need to be um, careful that we're doing this well in healthy ways that Jesus wants. And in many ways, what I've just mentioned here, this is way more rigorous than many other churches, especially churches that have been established. And there's a reason for that. One is, if you have an established church, you kind of have a process already going on. You already have a healthy, hopefully, leadership uh, community of, of elders going on. We don't have that at Redeemer yet. Like we're going to establish that, and so the bar is a little bit higher for these guys than it will be probably for people in the future, because the first elders that we ordain will set the tone going forward. Like, what kind of pastors does Redeemer have? 
These are going to be the kinds of pastors that Redeemer have. So it does require a bit of extra steps. Now, developing leaders in the church isn't just about the few people who will be elders. It'll be about all of us working together. And even as we looked at being leaders in the church, specifically today, of course, this is all good for all of us because all of us have this one task. God is committed to us. Jesus has bought the church. We all get to be committed to him in various ways. I mean, what other institution would, looking through all this stuff that we just talked about, let me just go back here. What other institution would benefit from you being committed to God? What other institution would benefit from uh, you working it out through preaching, through people orientation, through that posture of being a servant? Every single institution would be good, would be bettered if, you, if we all would act more like this. So even though this is, more, this is specifically about elders, it's not limited to being an elder. It's for all of us, for all Christians. Now we, all of us, get to be part of this church. God has fully committed to us all of our warts and all so that we would be fully committed to him. When we were outside God's family. He was fully committed to us and he brought us in and is still fully committed to us, and the ups and the downs of our spiritual lives, he never stops being fully committed to us. And the biggest way, Jesus' death on the cross, is this working out in reality. We couldn't come to him, so he came to us. We were stuck in that quicksand, even though you may not have encountered it in real life. We've all encountered it in our spiritual lives, and he has come to us through his cross. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion. Can I, um, sorry, I didn't bring one up here. Oh, thanks, John. See, we will um, celebrate these as we sing. And what we have before us, you have these under your chairs, what we have before us is a symbol of what it took of Jesus coming down, a symbol of his blood and his body given up for his church, for his people, so that we could even be here talking about, man, wouldn't it be great if Redeemer could grow out of a church plant phase into an established church phase, so one day, Lord willing, we'd be able to plant another church. And this is a symbol of what we get to be a part of, or a symbol of how we get to be a part of this. Jesus came down, he died for us, he resurrected for us, so that we could be committed to him. His commitment was full. It was full on. He didn't hold back at all. And so we get to be fully committed to him, knowing we will never miss out the more we are committed to him. We actually miss out in not being committed to him, but we'll never miss out the more we are committed to him. I'm going to pray in a moment, and after that we'll sing, and we'll take communion on our own as we sing together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have brought us here today. We thank you you have um, given us this room, and what a small kind of image of what that looks like. A room that, was, um, that needed to be changed, that needed to be refurbished, that needed overhauling. Lord, surely that's a small image of what that looks like for our church as we brought all of our brokenness in, as we brought all of our baggage in, Lord, we need to change more than we knew it. We thank you that you came down from heaven to earth to do just that. Not us as individuals, but us as your church. And as you continue to grow us to be the people that um, you're calling us to be, that we could be those people who are even more committed to you today than we were yesterday. Lord, we, go, we, we know that is nothing less than your work in our lives, drawing us from darkness to light.